The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. I would invite you now to turn to Titus chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there's one uh, coming down the middle of the aisle. If you want to raise your hand and borrow a Bible, you can do that. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3, picking up at verse 1, as we're going through this three-chapter little epistle from the Apostle Paul to Titus, who served with the Apostle Paul for probably two decades or more, planning churches and doing the work of the ministry church, fifth grade on down, for those that will be interested in being a part of that, and that's during the sermon time, and so today the kiddos will stay in here with us. Uh, We had a children's church teacher today, but got sick at the last minute, so uh, just another example of a lot of folks struggling with physical illnesses and those kind of things, so keep them in prayer. Uh, But we'll go ahead and look at Titus chapter 3. Just by way of summary, so chapter 1, which we already looked at, and that was uh, Paul telling Titus, Titus, I left you there the island of Crete. You need to establish some solid leadership for the many house churches probably there and probably a lot of new and young Christians. So things were underdeveloped. Titus was to be there and remain uh, for a substantial period of time to help establish leadership and get that intact. That's what chapter 1 was about, all about. And Paul gave God's very specific qualifications. And with that solid foundation laid in place, then Paul in chapter 2 talked about how Christians are supposed to relate to each other in the church and in the church community. So it's kind of in-house relationships, dealing with every age group of where you're at in life, your season of life. There are indeed seasons of life. There are appropriate considerations depending upon your season of life and also where you're at socially. So that was chapter 2, God's requirements and priorities how we're supposed to relate to other believers in the church. And now we transition to chapter 3. It's a very clear transition. And that's how how are Christians supposed to relate in the world. When you leave this place, some churches have on, uh, as you're walking out the front door, a plaque above the door, and it says, you are now entering the mission field. You're leaving your holy huddle of the church, all your Christian buddies, and now you're entering into the mission field, which is the world. I, I actually like that sign. Because it's true, no matter where you go, uh, you are Christ's ambassador with the good news available to give to unbelievers wherever you go. And so in chapter 3, once you leave this campus and go out into the world, and some of you have jobs in the secular environment and others uh, interact in other places throughout the week among unbelievers. And in that context, you're going to definitely be rubbing shoulders and even be in the face of unbelievers. All week long, the question is, how are you to conduct yourself as a Christian? How do you live among the Gentiles? And that's what chapter 3 is all about. It's real simple. So we're going to start looking at these guidelines from God's point of view of how we're supposed to interact with the unbelieving world, the unsaved world. We are, Our hope is in heaven. We're waiting for heaven. We're longing for heaven. We're praying for heaven. Praying for Jesus' coming. That's what Maranatha means. That's a prayer from the Apostle Paul. Come, Lord Jesus. That's how the Christian should pray. That's what we should long for. Living in this sinful, fallen, broken world, it's hard. And so our hope is in Christ and our hope is in the future and our hope is in heaven. But in the meantime, God's called us to live in this fallen, dark, difficult world representing Him, being faithful stewards. And so these are helpful reminders for us in chapter 3, especially the beginning of the chapter there. 
Uh, I just want to look at the first two verses. So let's go ahead and read those. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, how Christians are supposed to live among the pagans, among the Gentiles, among the lost, among non-Christians, among anti-Christians, among hostile people who hate Christianity. Anybody that's an unbeliever who's not a Christian, from the formal ranks down to the average person who might be your next-door neighbor. How do we live with these people? What's our attitude? And Paul says in verse 1, remind them. Remind them. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men, or literally showing every consideration for all people. Men, women, children, unbeliever, believer, black, white, brown, yellow, upper echelon economic status, lower echelon, the poor, the rich, doesn't matter. This country, that country, this language, that language, all people. These are great reminders. Uh, so just taking those two verses, I broke this up into five points I want us to keep in mind and be reminded of. and. Pray to God that He'd help us continue to live this way with this mindset and then as a result of the mindset, manifest the following actions of how we relate to unbelievers. So let's go ahead and look at point number one I put there. Five things, five commands, five mandates from God. Here you got God telling us what to do again. That's okay. He's the Creator. He's the Master. He's the Lord. We are His slaves. It's okay for God the Master to tell us what to do. He's in charge. He makes the rules. He knows what's best for us. And there are blessings for when we live according to how He commands us to live the right way. This is not legalism. This is living out of obedience because of our love for God and our Savior, Jesus. So I am not offended in the least when God is telling me what to do. As a matter of fact, I want God to keep telling me what to do more and more because I don't know what to do on my own. And so here are at least five commands that we can employ on a regular basis as we live our life in this unsaved world. Uh, let's look at the first one. It's the beginning of verse 1. He says, remind them to be subject, or literally remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities. And I just simply put, submit. Submit. We've talked about this before. Submit to political leaders. That's what he's talking about. Submit to political leaders, those in charge, government, governmental uh, officials. Remind them. Uh, Paul's saying these people are Christians. This is basic to the Christian life. They've heard sermons and Bible studies and truth about being submissive because that just kind of goes with the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a submissive person because that's how God has created the world. That's how He wants the world to be conducted is authority and submission. And so this is just a reminder. This is basic Christianity. Christianity 101 of how we're supposed to relate and live with and as we intermingle with unbelievers. So this is just a reminder. And we need this reminder time and time again. I know I do. We do as fallen people. We need to be reminded of truths and the right thing to do all the time, don't we? We just need a refresher continually and constantly. This is not redundant. This is not superfluous. This is not needless. We need these ongoing reminders by virtue of who we are as people. 
And as we interact with uh, an unsaved world, many times we get offended. Sometimes we get morally self-righteous and look down our nose and, or get frustrated by the immorality. And there is a righteous indignation that's legitimate as we have as Christians as we look around the world and see how there's kind of a spiraling effect into immorality in terms of our world and the country in which we live and the city in which we live and the laws of God are being broken and violated and offended all the time. And as Christians, we have the Spirit of God living in us. So there are times where we look at a corrupt society as the Apostle Paul did when he looked at Mars Hill and saw idolatry and immorality everywhere and it said that he was provoked in his spirit in the book of Acts. So that was a righteous indignation that he had in his heart because God's laws were being violated with all this immorality. So that is legitimate and consistent with being a Christian if you have the Spirit of God living in you. You should be incensed and offended by sin and immorality wherever you see it. As a matter of fact, if you're not, there's a problem. If you're watching a movie and you're not offended by a swear word or somebody taking God's name in vain or you're shopping at Safeway and the person behind you is using God's name in vain or Jesus' name in vain or a cuss word and that doesn't offend you, there's a problem if you're a Christian. If you have a sensitive conscience, then uh, you will grieve by what grieves God. So uh, these are just basic reminders as you live in the world. God knows that you're going to have to walk kind of the fence as you walk into the world in terms of being a Christian and how you respond to unbelievers. On the one hand, you've got this legitimate internal uh, righteous indignation that comes from being a Christian and God's law being violated on the one hand. And then on the other hand is our call to love sinners. Right? The greatest mission of the church is to bring the gospel to unbelievers. The greatest work of the church is redemption for sinners. And so we've got to have a love for people. Just a basic love for humanity. Recognizing every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being is valuable and precious to God. Every human being is an object of salvation in Christ Jesus to be made a new creation. God so loved the world, so also should we, right? And so that's the double edge there. That's um, It's a struggle for Christians or a conundrum or something that we have to battle with and manage and we need help and guidance. Because the Bible does say God so loved the world. And He's talking about the sinful world. And then in Psalm chapter 5, it says God hates the sin of the world and even has enemies that He hates. Wow. How does that work? Well, they go together somehow. And that's also the struggle that the Christian has. So, But he starts out talking about the right attitude we need to have as we're interacting with unbelievers in a fallen world. And he starts at the top with the leadership. I don't know, there's like 270-something countries in the world, I think, last count. Uh, maybe more. And every one of those legitimate nations or countries is being run by unbelievers, Gentiles, pagans, unsaved people and unsaved laws. I don't know if you knew that. There, there is not a physical, geographic, Christian born-again nation on planet Earth today. There, there just isn't. Jesus Himself said in the, the book of Luke, you are now living in the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles will go on until Christ comes again and establishes literally His kingdom on the earth. Now, I didn't say that there isn't a Christian nation on earth. If you're listening carefully, I said there's not a literal, physical, homogeneous 
socio-political Christian nation on the earth right now. But there is a nation on the earth. Because Peter makes that clear. He says that the church is a holy people, a nation, a holy nation. So there is a nation of God on earth, and it's the church. And it's the invisible church. It's everybody who's a true Christian makes up one true nation. And we're literally on the earth. We are citizens of the earth. And we're also citizens of heaven. So there is a Christian nation on earth. That's a good, should I say trick question? It's a good question to ask people. Uh, what one nation on earth is the Christian nation? And probably most Ameri- or many Americans would say, America, we're the Christian nation. And then all the Christians in the Philippines are offended. No, we are. And on and on. So uh, actually the, the answer is the church is the holy, the one true nation of God's people on the earth. So with that, wherever you live on planet earth, you are dealing with a government and a hierarchy and a system and laws for the most part that aren't coming only from the Bible. The Bible is not the ultimate authority and final authority in any government that I'm aware of on planet earth today. Bible influences certain laws, but it's not the final authority. The Bible is the final authority for the church, the body of Christ, God's true nation and people. So the point is every Christian has the same obligation to submit to all of their governmental authorities under whatever nation in which they live, and that's what we're called by God to do. And so Paul says in Titus chapter 3, remind them, Christian, to be subject to rulers, to authorities. And that's talking about in Paul's day it was kings. Usually, whether it was Caesar, a lot of dictators, despots, one guy was in charge for whatever reason, sometimes legitimate, sometimes illegitimate, humanly speaking. He backstabbed and killed his brother, so now he took over the throne. Now he's the king. That's just the way it is. Now, nevertheless, he was still the king. And Paul is saying, this guy is the king. This person is the king. They have been ordained with this authority. And our basic obligation as Christians is to submit to that king. This is... There are three chapters in the Bible that are kind of the political chapters, if you will, in terms of telling Christians how to live with respect to the government under which they are under in the world. And so you've got Titus chapter 3, Romans 13, and then also in First Peter starting in chapter 2. And they all say the same thing. Christians, you need to submit to the governing authorities. But he's a different, different political party than I am. It doesn't matter. The thing in this command, it is so categorical, black and white, and it's the same in Romans 13 and also in Peter, there are no exceptions to the rule. Remind them to be subject to rulers. Remind them to be subject and be submissive to the authorities that rule in their government, whether it's the nation, the state, the city in which you live, under your jurisdiction, the king, the mayor, uh, whoever that political official is, the number one response of Christians is to submit to that authority. And on the one hand, we say, okay, we understand God's calling. And then, Quickly, we can say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, and all these disclaimers, right? Pointing out, well, what about if you have an unfair uh, leader or unfair laws? We'll get to that, but first and foremost, our calling is to be submissive. The Apostle Paul himself lived by this command. He submitted to the authorities after he became a Christian in the jurisdictions and the governments in which he lived. And he was a Roman citizen. His Roman emperors were worse than any presidents we've ever had in the history of the United States. They were more abusive. They were more vile. They were more uh, anti-Christian, especially some later on as the church grew and they started uh, capturing and arresting and slaughtering and killing and murdering Christians. And nevertheless, Paul can still make this command from God. You need to submit to the authority in which God has ordained. 
remind them to be submissive to rulers, to authorities. So for us here in America, it's remind them to be submissive to the president, remind them to be submissive to Congress, remind them to be submissive to the House of Representatives, remind them to be submissive to the Constitution, remind them to be submissive to the government, governor of the state of California, the, remind them to be submissive to the mayor in which you live, remind them to be uh, submissive to the city council in which you live, and on and on it goes. But that is God's command. Well, why is that? Well, Romans 13, we read a little earlier. And the reason why, one of the reasons why, is because every authority that exists was ordained by God. That's the reason. Why did President Obama get elected last time? Well, because he got more votes. Well, yeah, and not really. I mean, ultimately, from a biblical point of view, God put him in that position. Why are the people in the Senate that are in the Senate? Ultimately, God put them in that position. That's what Romans 13 says. And if you move to another country, you'd have a leader and you could say the same thing. Why is this person ruling at this time? Because God put them there. You mean Adolf Hitler was the Chancellor of Germany for over two decades because God put him there? Yes. Why would God do that? It's a great question. It's a challenging question, but that's what Romans 13 says. So, uh, reason number one to submit to authorities is because God is in charge. He is sovereign. He runs uh, the world in which we live by authority and submission. And God has put every authority in its place by His divine decree for whatever reason. So obligation number one is for us to submit to all those leaders that are in authority in government over us. Whether they're Christians or not, uh, believers or not, it doesn't matter because God has put every authority in its place. He is in charge. It's amazing. And He has a plan that's going according to His will perfectly. So our job is simply to submit to political leaders. And that's what it means when it says be subject to rulers and authorities. Okay, let's go on to number two. Not only do we submit to the actual institution of government, whether it's a democratic government or a dictatorship. And the emphasis in the first part of the verse was on submitting to individuals. The king, says the book of Romans, be subject to the king. Point number two, we need to obey the laws of the land. It's the following phrase. Remind them to be subject to rulers, kings, to authorities, and also to be obedient in general. This is just to be an obedient person. The mark of a Christian is somebody who's obedient. To do what you're told and to do what is right. To hear. Obey means literally comes from the word to hear. We hear the truth. We hear the right thing to do. We hear the law and we agree to it and we submit to it. We do what we are told to do. That's being obedient. And obedient is doing things with the right actions. But obedience is also, according to a Christian way to do it, is the right attitude. So being obedient has to do with actions and attitudes. And that's the word being used here. So, Christian, not only do you submit to the, the governmental authorities that are over you, but you also have to obey the individual laws of the land and characterize your lifestyle as one that is obedient. Doing what is right. That's the mark of a Christian. Those should be the fruits of your life, the fruits of my life. Obedience. God has saved us to be an obedient people. He's given us the Spirit of God when we got saved to empower us to be obedient. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Um, so let's go ahead and look at that. Number two, obey the laws of the land. I want to get more specific here on uh, what this means. 
and how we can do it in this uh, difficult society in which we live. Being obedient, um, specific laws of the land. This would be, uh, again, laws that are employed by certain authorities. Being obedient to the police, uh, police officers, uh, laws of the land like the speed limit, uh, laws and ordinances of the land in our cities like, uh, and they're making new laws all the time. We have ordinances regarding cell phones, how you're not supposed to be driving with a cell phone onto your ear, text messaging, those kind of things. That's the law of the land. To violate those is to be disobedient and contrary to what this passage is calling us to do. Here's a difficult one. Uh, abiding by the speed limit. For you lead foot people who like to drive fast, uh, if your conscience is convicted the next time you're speeding, that is a good thing. That's the Spirit of God telling you you need to be obedient to the law of the land. And I also am convicted by these things that are very practical that we confront all the time and every day in our life. We need to obey the laws of the land. Uh, I'm flip to First Peter chapter 2 because here's another reason why. This is a parallel passage. So if you go back a few books to First Peter... Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 9. Peter addresses the same theme. And Peter also lived in a corrupt world, a non-Christian world, um, a hypocritical world, a very hostile pagan world. And yet he says the same thing. Starting at verse 9 in 1 Peter, chapter 2, but you, Christian, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, there's where they got that nation a people for God's own possession. You need to live holy, Peter says. Why should we live holy in the midst of a lost, corrupt world? So that, there's the purpose clause in the middle of verse 9, so that you as a Christian may proclaim the excellencies of Him, God. As you go out into the world, you live a holy life, you're not a hypocrite, and you might have <clears throat> a platform or a forum to speak the excellencies of God. What are the excellencies of God? <clears throat> they are excellent things about God. The Gospel. Truths about God. People don't want to listen to a hypocrite. They usually won't. So if we call ourselves Christian and we are hypocritical, violating the laws, we've lost our audience. We've lost a hearing from an unsaved world. And so Peter says, live holy and you may have a forum or an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of God on his behalf. So obey the laws of the land. Here are examples, uh, and Christians struggle with this, because like I said, that righteous indignation can kick in. We're disgusted with the latest law. Of, it's violating God's Word, and they're trying to shove it down our throat, or they're trying to force it into the uh, public school agenda where we they take our tax money and then they fund it, something like pro-abortion or pro-immorality or anti-biblical marriage in the school curriculum where our tax money goes. And it's like, well, we want a voice. I have my rights. Well, there's some truth to that. But sometimes Christians overreact and violate some of these basic principles. And they aren't submissive. They aren't obeying the law of the land. And they go too far in their righteous indignation. Here are some examples of not obeying the law, not obeying authorities that are common for Christians. In the sports world, it could be arguing with the referee. Really? I've been a coach for years and players and... There's a right way. You can appeal to a ref, like in a basketball game. You can make an appeal that's legit. And a lot of times the ref will tell you that before the game. I want to talk. The team has a question. The captain can come ask me at a timeout or whatever. 
But if you're a Christian and you're arguing and haranguing and uh, with the ref, you're defying authority. And your example and testimony is on the line. So that's just a common one for us. Uh, protests. Protests, riots, vigilantism, civil disobedience. Anytime there's that kind of stuff publicly going on, you don't need to discern and find out, well, what movement is that and what people is that? and what is that right? Is it legit? No, it is wrong. It's wrong because it's defying authority. There's a right way to proceed. There's a right way to make an influence. There's a right way uh, to have recourse as a Christian. It's like when the sit-in on the Wall Street, whatever they called that. What was that thing? Um, yeah, you know what it was. Two years ago. Everybody's sitting in uh, in the public square in their tents and defecating all over the sidewalks and they're not working and uh, making a mess. And then there were just horrible things going on there. And they saw that that's just Ill- a Christian should have nothing to do with that. That's contrary to everything this passage calls us to do as Christians. It's not peaceable. It's not gentle. It's not showing consideration for all people. It's venting rebellion. Civil disobedience. There are Christians in movements that are sponsored very formally by who are Christians who are anti-abortion. And I'm not pro-abortion. I am anti-abortion. I am pro-life. Baby in the womb was a person made in the image of God that is sacred and holy. Yet some Christians take that to an extreme and they do what's called civil disobedience. And they'll go out and stand in the middle of traffic and protest and stop all of traffic on the San Francisco Bay Bridge and back it up for three hours. And that's supposed to be done in the name of Jesus? I don't think so. That makes me late. Uh, That is not Christ-like behavior. Or literally one of the things that they do or the antics that they do is they will handcuff themselves to abortion clinics' front doors. That, that's not Christian. That's not submitting to authority. That's, Jesus never did anything like that. I mean, you just go to the Bible. Did Jesus ever do anything like that? Absolutely not. Did the Apostle Paul as a Christian? Never. And Christians should have no business doing that. Actually, all you do is you mar the name of Christ. You become a horrible testimony. And then everybody else, uh, when they think of Christian, they think of that person who chained themselves to the front door of an <clears throat> abortion clinic. And then the next thing you see, some mockery of it on Saturday Night Live, making buffoons of all Christians. So that's what this is talking about. Walking that balance. We should be typified by obedience. Some boycotts are totally illegitimate on the part of Christians. I'm never shopping there at Safeway again in the history of my life because did you know that some of the ham that they sell is made by some company over in Wisconsin and the owner of that company in Wisconsin, he's an atheist? Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Wow, that's too much information. Wow, how did you find that out? Yeah, therefore, I'm never shopping at Safeway again. Because he's an atheist and I'm protesting atheists. And then the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, well, then you'd have to leave the world, pal, because uh, unbelievers are everywhere. And that's not how you're supposed to interact with unbelievers. That's not supposed to be your attitude towards unbelievers. You're supposed to love them. Love your enemy, pray for your enemy, serve your enemy. Right? And we're going to get to that specifically in verse 3 and following in Titus. So instead of boycotting Safeway, go into Safeway, be a light, be an example, uh, pray for their beef department, and be light in a lost world. And good luck finding a supermarket that doesn't have an atheist connected to it somewhere. You can't be consistent with that principle. There's no way. You'll be a hypocrite if you just search far enough. That's why so many times these boycotts, they're they're not founded in biblical practice or discipline. And actually, if you watch... 
Jesus, he didn't really boycott a whole lot of people. It's kind of interesting who Jesus did boycott. He boycotts the exact opposite kind of people that we as Christians, self-righteous Christians, sometimes want to boycott. Who do we want to boycott? Well, the sinners, right? And the adulteresses and the bad people and the atheists. And then those were like the people that Jesus went and had dinner with and hung out with and loved on. But he did boycott the self-righteous, snooty, condemning religious people called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, didn't he? When they deserved it. He had nothing to do with them. So that's just the, so Jesus did believe in boycotting, but his boycotting usually is the exact opposite of what Christians typically will do when they boycott. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Luke chapter 5 says we need to be a friend of sinners as well. But we need to be, obey the laws of the land. So this is just a great reminder. So we need to submit to the authority uh, wherever we are, and then we need to obey the laws of the land. <clears throat> Let's go on to number three. By the way, the title of this sermon is Living Godly in a Godless Society. These are marks of living in a godly way. In Yes, it is true, in a godless society everywhere we go. Uh, number three, contribute positively to society this is just talking about on your a regular, daily, spontaneous, continual basis as you interact in your sphere of arena, by the way. Uh, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To be ready for every good deed. Keep your finger there and then go to Galatians. Uh, going back, Galatians, Ephesians. Galatians chapter 6. And then we'll look at verse uh, 10. Because this complements... Uh, this command that we need to contribute positively to society. Um, this goes. This is the exact opposite of what, he, what many Christians have done for 2,000 years. They get saved. They're called holy in Scripture. The world is a mess. The world is sinful. And some Christians think, okay, now I need to totally isolate myself from sinful society. That is the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to isolate ourselves from sinful society. In other words, uh, early on in the church, third century, maybe even before that, uh, monasteries uh, started uh, turning up. Monasteries where somebody professes faith in Christ, they're a monk, and they isolate themselves literally from society because they don't want to be stained by the world, and they go live in on a hill away from everybody else or in a cave, and they don't talk to anybody, they don't interact with anybody. Uh, the last thing they're going to do is interact and mingle with the people of the world, the lost, sinful people of the world. And so they're just running away. Isolation. This is the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do as Christians when it says go into all the world, infiltrate the world, and wherever you go, contribute to society, be blessing to everybody around you. Do good. It says right here. Be ready to do good to all men at all times. You can't do that if you're living in a holy hut somewhere up on a hill. So isolation is not the call of Christian. Infiltration is the call of a Christian. That's a missionary mindset. Not isolation, infiltration. And that's really what this is referring to. Be ready. So now it's trickling down from government and those who rule to now just kind of as you intermingle with normal people in society from day to day. Your job at Yahoo, uh, your job at wherever you are, the public school that you go to if you're in college, wherever you go, this is for you, Christian. Be ready at all times to do every good deed as you have opportunity. Uh, that's where I want to read Galatians 6.10 now. What is he talking about? So then, Christian, while we have opportunity, as the opportunity provides you and presents you as you live life is what it's talking about. In the normal course of life, in, in your sphere of influence. This isn't say, uh, you, this is not commanding Christians, you need to do good to everybody in Mountain View. Because that's an impossible task. You need to do good to everybody in the state of California. No, God is realistic. You can't do that. I can't do that. We are limited. 
So it's pretty specific in Galatians 6, as you have opportunity that's in your sphere of influence, whoever you interact with and interface with, either planned or spontaneously. So going back to Galatians 6.10, so then while we have opportunity, so you're going to have opportunities this week, most of which probably you don't even know about. As you're living your life, going to school, doing your job, walking down the street, going shopping, you're in the parking lot, there's somebody next to you, their battery's dead. They can't get their car started. Oop, they forgot their jumper cables, like I did two weeks ago. I'm knocking on every house in the neighborhood. Nobody's home! Finally, I found jumper cables. But anyway, you're in the parking lot and somebody's car's down and God put you in that sphere and you've got jumper cables. And you've got seven extra minutes. Do good. Help that person. That's what he's talking about. Uh, Galatians 6.10, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. See, it doesn't matter who it is. You don't go up to somebody who, who needs a help. You need a jump? Yeah. What, are you a Christian? What church do you go to? Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Et cetera, et cetera. No. All people. Why all people? Because every human being is precious to God, made in the image of God, is sacred. And that needs to be all right. This, this comes down to just, do you have a love and a concern for people? It's really what it is. It's a hard attitude. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So that's just talking about as you're walking life and you have opportunity and God's giving you... I mean, when you're driving down the highway and you see somebody stranded on the road and their car and their lights are flashing, what do you think? What goes on in your mind? Every time I see that, I, think I feel your pain as I'm driving by because that's been me many, many times. And I thank God for just spontaneous people that have actually stopped, pulled over. Most of the time, it's people who aren't even Christians because when they're helping me, I'll ask them. Try to, try to get to know them and see what they believe. And sometimes it's a believer and sometimes it's just it's not a believer. It's some total lost pagan who was made in God's image and God used them as a tool to show compassion to me and get me back on the road. So as I have opportunity, I like to stop and help. And then when I can't stop, I feel very guilty that I didn't get to stop and help that person. That's what this is talking about. Being ready for every good deed as we have opportunity. And if you need to re go back and read Luke 10 and the Good Samaritan, that's all this is. This is the Good Samaritan principle. It, this is without prejudice or bias. Uh, what color is his skin? Should I stop and help him? Oh, he looks like he has enough money. money. He can call somebody to help him. It's without prejudice, without partiality, without bias. As you have opportunity, be an ambassador for the love of Christ and help anybody Every opportunity you have. The big, the little, everything in between. You're at Whole Foods and 20 feet away you see somebody coming up in a wheelchair and you get up and you open the door for them. That's really all, that's all I'm talking about. The love of Jesus Christ. The ethic of Christianity. Fulfilling basic principles uh, that the Lord Jesus did for people when He lived with them. Love your neighbor as yourself and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's kind of interesting, this biblical Christian ethic that comes from incarnate love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone did a study of American culture and history. This was probably 20 to 30 years ago, so it's not up to date, but I'll never forget it when I heard it. That They were saying that over 98 or 99% of hospitals in America that had been started and built were done by Christian organizations. And the reason he was saying this is he was debating an atheist. And his question was, what, is it, what good has atheism done for society? And the atheist you know, rattled off a few things, but they really weren't significant. And then this Christian starts with this very specific list and statistics. I mean, isn't that amazing? 
the Christian ethic, the love of Christ, regardless of how it makes its way down and trickles down into the construction of a hospital. And so things like homes for boys and orphanages, hospitals, uh, care facilities, uh, homeless shelters, places that provide counsel for people in distress and in need, uh, the high percentage of these come from those in the Christian community. And that is not a mistake. That is the heart and the transforming love of Jesus Christ as He works through His people. And yeah, every once in a while you'll find some philanthropic organization that builds a hospital, but I guarantee if you look at its foundation, you look at their core values, and even I've seen this among unbelieving secular philanthropic organizations that build a hospital, and then there's their statement purpose or their whatever you want to call it, and they'll have something in there literally that says, because we believe in doing unto others as you do unto yourself. I'm thinking, oh, they stole that out of the Bible and they don't even realize it. It came from, you can't get away from it. That's the biblical ethic, the Jesus ethic. And that's how we're supposed to live, is contributing positively to society, not secluding ourselves from society everywhere we go. I was proud of my daughter uh, a few years ago. She's not here. She's in college, but just on her own. When she was in high school and became of age, she volunteered to help the balloting booth in our local neighborhood. And I thought, wow, that's weird. I would never think of that. But I thought it was cool. And so she went on voting day and was there helping and she was a messenger and doing all this stuff. And I went in to visit and see how she was doing and she was enjoying it. And uh, the people she was working with were delighted that she was there uh, being a servant. And uh, it was just spontaneous out of nowhere that I thought, well, that was cool. Just one example. So let's go on. Uh, so as Christians, as we live in a lost world, we're submitting to the authority figures. We're obeying the laws of the land. We're doing good as we have opportunity. And then number four, here's a hard one. We are to malign no one. Malign no one. You know, during the election season here at this church, I heard Christians and people here at this church malign uh, Obama. Malign means to say, malign, the Greek word here, uh, blaspheme, oh, blaspheme, blaspheme, that's to misuse somebody's name. Blaspheme. Uh, but as I was saying, there are a few, there are some people, you, you just kind of hear it, people are, uh, during the election side, they're blaspheming, misusing maligning Obama's name. And I also heard people maligning Romney's name. As a matter of fact, I think every candidate running for office I heard maligned by name. Everywhere I went. And I, I probably at times did the same thing. Maligning. This is so easy to do. Uh, malign means to blaspheme literally someone's name, to invoke their name in an appropriate manner. It's how you talk about them when they are not around. It's how you talk about people behind their back, slanderous, cursing, treating them with contempt by virtue of their name. And again, the idea is every human being, I don't care, fill in the blank. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being has a love from God as Creator and Savior. Every human being, God is desiring for their repentance coming to Christ and salvation. That's the heart of God. Every human being made in the image of God is valuable and precious and sacred to God. Hence the command, malign no one. It doesn't say you can't disagree with anybody. That's not what it's saying. This is a personal illegitimate attack on them as a human being made in the image of God. You can totally disagree with their politics and delineate 72 reasons why, legitimately so, their politics are bad, damaging, whatever. But you can't cross the line and malign them as a person. So that, again, is the Christian ethic. 
malign no one. And he is specifically talking about political officials and all the way down. People you dis- That's the emphasis. This is how you live in the world with people you disagree with. Unbelievers. Sinful people. As Christians, it's easy to be arrogant, condescending, looking down our nose in a self-righteous, uh, holy kind of manner. Oh, you despicable sinner. And then malign them on a personal level. No, we hate their behavior. It is an offense to God, but we don't malign them personally. Have you ever been in a room a bathroom, maybe it was when you were in elementary school or high school or junior high, and you saw your name on the bathroom wall or the locker room wall. I did. There's just something about seeing your name being misused. That's blasphemy. That's what the word blasphemy means. It's misusing, denigrating your name. By invoking that name, you're invoking the very person and their character and and uh, Paul saying, "Don't do." That. I remember when Bill Clinton was—I'm not a Democrat, just so you know—but uh, when Bill Clinton was running for president the first time, I just remember they were, there was a radio station and some TV commercials for conservatives, and they were selling doormats that you could buy that had Clinton's face on the doormat, so that when you come, you you rub your dirty feet on uh, feet on the mat and you rub it all over Clinton's face. Now some of you are laughing. How dare you? In light of the verse that I just read, malign no one. But anyway, uh, that is maligning. A government official. And I laughed when I saw that as well. But again, the challenge. We don't malign them on a personal level. Paul's going to tell specifically why next week too. Why we don't do that. Think of the worst, most pathetic person you could possibly think of. And then Paul says, you were like that too before you got saved. That was you. And if God could save you, God can save anybody. Even the most notorious, heinous Wicked sinner. So that helps keep our attitude in check. Blaspheme no one. And hold yourself accountable to do so. First uh, Timothy 2 says, instead of blaspheming political officials, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God's will would be done. Pray that God preserves peace in your society. Pray that, pray that God preserves peace in the society so you conduct your life quietly and privately as a Christian and with worship fulfilling God's commands and not being a menace to society. So don't malign your political officials. Rather, pray for them. It's kind of unique here in America. We have, I mean, if you don't like your governor in California, you can just move to another state. That's what's kind of unique about California. Right? Then you can say you like your governor if you move to another state. You can even move to different states if you don't like a law. Paul didn't have that privilege. The law of the land was Roman law and it was universally binding no matter where he went. Here in America, you don't like to pay income taxes. I hate California and I hate the income tax law. Well, quit your whining while you live here and pay your taxes. But you don't have to. Do, you can actually move to Florida or Texas if you want to. Then you don't have to pay your, uh, your taxes, state income taxes. Or if you're like me and you hate that new ordinance in Sunnyvale with a passion that when I go shopping at Lucky's or Safeway, they're going to pay, make me pay $0.10 cents for every bag to put my... Gro- Are you kidding me? I mean, I, I literally told the last person when I was in Sunnyvale, told the, I was nice as could be. She said, would you like a bag? Well, of course I'd like a bag. Well, that'll be $0.10 cents each. I said, oh yeah, this is Sunnyvale, isn't it? She said, yeah. I said, that's why I live in Cupertino. And I, I, re- I forgot why... Now I remember why I don't shop in Sunnyvale. But yeah, here's your $0.30. Cents. But you can just you can move or shop at another city. So we have some privileges that are amazing today that are different in America. I mean, like in Paul's day, submit to the king. And in America, did you know that you can be the king? 
That is mind-boggling. You can be dirt poor, born in the woods, in a log cabin, have absolutely nothing, grow up and be the 16th president of the United States of America. You have just become the king. I can't think of a nation in the history of the world that had that unique privilege, but that's true of America. Nevertheless, while you're in the position that you are, you need to abide by these biblical mandates. So finally, after maligning no one, let's go on to the last one. And just a generic final command for all of us to heed, and that is to be humble toward all people. Just be humble. Be meek. Be selfless. These are good reminders. Uh, specifically, he says to be peaceable. That's uncontentious. That's, you're not argumentative. You're not belligerent. You're not always stirring it up with people wherever you go. I could have been belligerent with that lady at Sunnyvale, lucky who didn't make that ordinance, who's just doing her job, trying to charge me 10 cents for each plastic bag. And I could have argued with her. That would have been ungodly, unchristlike, and I wouldn't have gotten a free bag anyway. I don't need to be belligerent with her. That's what peaceable means. Be a peacemaker. Insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, says Paul in Romans 12. Also be gentle. Gentle is your approach. Peaceable is kind of your mindset and even your words about how you conduct yourself. And then the word gentle is actually your methodology and the actual approach of how you come across to people in terms of the specific word being used. And they, they all have to be there, those attributes. And then, that's, and then it goes on to define uh, how you're to be peaceful and how you're to be gentle, and that is showing consideration for all men, showing consideration. Uh, again, a word for meekness and humility. Uh, it's also... The opposite of being having self-interest and being self-focused. And again, it's a genuine concern for how others are doing. Showing consideration for all people. A, a genuine consideration for how others are doing. I, I do notice as a pastor, when I'm talking to people, it's just my nature, I can't help it. And I love people, and I love to talk to people, and I love to counsel people. And But it does stand out how people talk sometimes. If it, it blesses my heart when people will spontaneously, and how are you doing? And how are you doing? Uh, not to brag on my daughter, but I will again. Uh, last week, we're talking on the phone, and I called to check in to see how things are doing and uh, offer advice for all the problems in life and whatever else, and we're having a conversation. We, we went on for like 10, 15 minutes, and I'm solving, solving all 37 of her problems, you know, with fatherly wisdom. And then I was done, and there's pause, and she goes, Dad, how are you doing? It's like, Whoa. Wow, Eureka, we have arrived. That is awesome. And I said, wow, thanks for asking. Because I, I don't know if I can't remember the last time I heard that. And it was sincere. Well, Dad, how are you doing? And then I unloaded for about 20 minutes. <laughs> here's, how, here's how my lousy week is going. Thanks for asking. And then I told her when I was done, I said, man, I really appreciate you asking that. Do you know that is a tremendous mark of maturity? You are, all, you are now almost a, a complete adult woman. Wow, thanks, Dad. But that's what showing consideration is. It's not being self-absorbed and self-focused. And that's what God calls us to be. So, with that, as we go out in the world and we see that sign that isn't up there that says you are now entering the mission field and you rub shoulders in a pagan world and a lost and fallen world with many difficult people and difficult situations... Uh, just remember these things to submit to your political officials, not malign them, but pray for them and pray for God's will. Obey the laws of the land as you're driving home with your cell phone and the, taking note of the speed limit. Contribute positively to society wherever you go, noting, noticing people in need in your sphere of influence. 
And just in general, asking God to help you to be humble towards all people. Because by nature, we are self-absorbed and self-focused. With that, I just want to take five minutes, I promise, with short answers, one-sentence answers to anybody that has a question specifically regarding this topic, what we just talked about, what I just preached on, and living as a Christian in light of a godless society. Because I know all kinds of questions come up, exceptions to the rule, whatever. So I'm going to go ahead and field some questions, and then I will close this in prayer. Does anybody have a question that came to your mind? You're dying for an answer on the topic at hand. And if you don't, I've got a comment I want to make. Gene, go ahead. Um, yes, absolutely. Do these principles apply in how I conduct myself in the home? And a lot of that actually goes back to Titus chapter 2. And the word, the principle of submission, humility, all those were there. Anybody else? Uh, Addison. Yeah, how do we see that was the question I was looking for. How do you peaceably disagree with the government in which you live? And that part of that is the uniqueness you you have here in America. Addison, run for president. I'll vote for you. Get that petition going. Um, You have all kinds of ways to appeal the the voting box, uh, writing letters to your congressman, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, initiating Congress or prompting them to write new laws uh, in your favor, those kind of things, consistent with biblical law. There's a lot of ways that Americans can appeal. Uh, We have Christian legal societies that do tremendous work. Uh, ACLJ, uh, JSECULO, just one example, many others who uh, legitimately uh, appeal to the government and unjust laws and have done a lot of wonderful things. So you have a voice. You have a unique unique thing that Paul didn't necessarily have in his government. You have a legitimate voice and venue uh, that's not contrary uh, to God's will, and uh, and you can uh, make a difference. Uh, anybody else? That's what's unique about America. Jeff, are you raising your hand? Yeah. Jeff Plaza. So I think it's a fine line, clearly, but it doesn't sound like you're saying don't have a dissenting view. Just don't that is correct. Like when I said, I didn't say you can't disagree with the politicians or their laws. Absolutely. Good point, Jeff, because I only mentioned one that you know did civil disobedience that's uh, illegitimate at times. But there are plenty of organizations you can affiliate with that do good to society and they do accomplish things in politics and whatever for good and Heritage Foundation. I mean, there's a lot of them. J. Seculo's organization, J. Seculo. And so, yes, you can affiliate with those and there are legitimate ways uh, to have an impact positively in your society for the common good. Anybody else? Cindy? Okay, when there is a law that is given to society that goes directly against Scripture, what do you do? That was the question I was waiting for. Thank you, Cindy. And I'm going to end with this by reading this passage. So we need to submit to our government authorities and all the laws of the land, except there is an exception clause. When... 
the secular government tries to force us to do something unbiblical. Or when they try to deprive us of doing a biblical mandate. So it's positive and negative. So if the government made a law forbidding us to preach the gospel, then we are obligated to violate that law. We must preach the gospel. Well, they might arrest us. Yeah, they might. And they might throw us in jail. Yeah, and they might. And they might beat us. Yeah, and they might kill us. True. Um, so when the government tries to forbid us from doing something biblical or when the government tries to coerce us or force us to do something unbiblical, if the government tried to force me as a pastor uh, to marry a gay couple, I won't do it. And if it comes to a point in this country where then that means I go to jail, then I guess I'm going to jail. And you guys will have to get an interim pastor in the meantime who's going to preach for you. Um, but I'm going to close with this. Acts chapter 4, and here's the balance. The apostles were out preaching the gospel. Uh, the Jews were very uh, hostile to them, and the Roman government was hostile to them. And as a result, they got arrested for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. They believe in one God, and it was Jesus. And because they didn't believe in Caesar as God, uh, that was against Roman law. And because they believed Jesus was God, that was against Jewish law. And as a result, they got arrested. The apostles did. And they beat them. And then they were about to let them go out of prison. But they warned them first, the apostles, and they said, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Okay, we're going to let you guys out of jail, but you can't preach about Jesus anymore. Or you get arrested again. And listen to what Peter and the apostles responded to the governing authorities. He didn't submit and obey. We have a higher calling, he said in verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give Heed to you rather than to God. You be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So we are going to obey the higher law and that is the law of God in which you are a violation against, which is the principle of Jesus in Matthew 22. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Therein lies the balance for us and that's helpful. Thanks for those questions. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together to look at a difficult subject from Your Word, but a very important one and practical one that we have to deal with virtually every day of our life. Living as believers, citizens of Your kingdom, residing as aliens in a fallen society as earthly citizens. God, give us wisdom from Your Word, power from the Spirit, and help from others in the church to live in a way that pleases You no matter where we are. We pray all for Your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.